You're listening to the Golden West Podcast. I'm Ryan, your host. Join me as I explore the best in food and wine on the West Coast, including California, Oregon, and Washington. We're about to go on a journey, exploring the people and stories behind the vineyards, farms, and kitchens. So grab a drink, fire up your grill, pull up a seat to the table, and listen in. We'll talk about it coming up next. Today's show is brought to you by Kova Coffee. Kova is a specialty roaster out of Portland, Oregon, and they're known for single-origin coffees, and they're committed to long-term, sustainable partnerships with coffee producers. Now, if you're like me, I love coffee. I always start my day off with a cup or two. I make it by hand with a pour-over, but it doesn't matter how you make yours. You can use a pour-over, maybe use a Chemex, maybe you just use a basic Mr. Coffee machine. It doesn't matter, but what does matter is the beans. You don't want those burnt, over-roasted corporate coffee beans that you find in the grocery store, and I don't even bother with that store brand stuff. So here's what you do. I'm going to make it really easy for you. Just go to covacoffee.com, that's C-O-A-V-A, coffee.com, and use our promo code, GOLDENWEST. You'll get $5 off your first purchase. Do it now while you're thinking about it, and your coffee will show up at your doorstep as soon as you know it. Today in the show, we have Ren Harris. Ren is the owner and operator of Paradigm Winery, along with his wife, Marilyn. He and his family have a long and storied history in the Napa Valley, starting long before their first vintage in 1991. Enjoy my conversation with Ren. Ren, welcome to the podcast. Wow, thanks, Ryan. Good to be here. Well, it's great having you here. So I think the first thing to do is start off with your long history both in California and in Napa Valley. Um, I'm seeing here you bought the property in Paradigm in 1975, but prior to that, you have been owning and operating vineyards since 1964. So let's let's talk about it. Well, um, yeah, we, I, I'm from San Francisco and um, was born and raised there. And uh, on my dad's side, the family goes back to when... Uh, California was actually part of Spain. Uh, they were in the Spanish military. And my wife uh, is from Napa Valley. Uh, she went to a girls' boarding school in San Francisco. And uh, we met in high school in 1958. Uh, got married in 1965. And uh, I was uh, working my way through uh, school uh, doing construction and construction estimating. And we fixed an old house up, and the plan was to do a succession of houses and uh, uh, kind of make a living that way. But uh, we sold our first house, had an opportunity to buy a 30-acre prune orchard, and did so. And my wife's family is in farming, and still is. And uh, with some guidance from her uh, family, a foreman uh, in particular, a a man by the name of Andy Del Bondio, we uh, learned how to operate tractors, pull tree stumps, uh, plant vines, lay out vineyards, picked up some Spanish overnight, and uh, went back to school a little bit here at the community college, also at UC Davis, and learned some of the ins and outs. The valley at the time uh, in the, in the mid-60s was going through tri- quite a transformation. There was maybe 12, 14,000 acres of grapes and a pretty much an equal number of acres of prunes. There was also pears, walnuts, and uh, some other odds and ends. But anyway, uh, I started uh, taking care of my former prune orchard and uh, and then uh, started managing some other properties. Uh, 
And then I turned over a few pieces of uh, property for myself through a local real estate broker and uh, got a little bit bigger. Uh, tried, we were up, uh, had a ranch in Calistoga, one down in Napa, one up near St. Helena. And uh, when this place came in the market, I'd been around for a little while then, and it uh, seemed like the ideal place, being in Oakville on the west side of the highway, uh, a lot of pretty nice vineyards around us, uh, and it seemed like the place we should keep, and so we did. But we have 55 acres here, uh, right in uh, Oakville, uh, just south of Robert Mondavi Winery, uh, something less than a mile, and... Um, when I bought the property, or we bought the property, it was in Pinot Noir, Chardonnay, Chenin Blanc, and White Riesling. Uh, and uh, in a fairly short order, we turned it into uh, Cabernet Merlot, uh, Cabernet Franc, some Zinfandel, and uh, a little Petit Verdot, which is what we're growing today. We uh, managed to hit the phylloxera bug that came in in the 80s and got to replant it yet again. And uh, then uh, up, up until that point, we sold all our grapes to other wineries. When I first came up here, there were 11 wineries and three co-ops. And we're now at uh, no co-ops and something in the neighborhood of 500 wineries. And um, we uh, have been making wine under the Paradigm label since 1991. And we still sell a few grapes to other wineries. And then uh, during the process, in addition to managing vineyards for other people and myself, I, uh, with a partner, uh, Gene Phillips, uh, business partner, we um, uh, started a brokerage company. And over a period of about uh, close to 20 years, we, from starting around 1980, We've sold uh, several dozen properties that became wineries uh, or already were wineries for that matter. And in the process, uh, Jean uh, uh, for herself uh, bought what became Screaming Eagle. She also married one of my close friends, a guy named Ed Zuck. And, um, and then around uh, the year 2000, uh, we uh, came up to a point where we had paid off our our mortgage here at Paradigm, and I quit everything else except taking care of my own stuff and what we've been doing ever since, making wine at Paradigm. In the process, I uh, did some work with Dick Peterson to design the winery and get started, and Dick happens to be Heidi Barrett's father. And when it came time to make the actual commercial wine, he turned me over to his daughter, who I had met in the past, actually. I knew her a little bit, and and she's been with us since 1991, first vintage. Yeah, there's an amazing history and a lot to unpack there. The one point you made about how Pinot Noir and there are some other varietals that you mentioned being grown on the property, I think that will come to a surprise to people that Pinot is actually planted there at the time. Was that something that back then uh, people just didn't know as much about what would grow better in certain areas or was there a certain story behind it? Yeah, the the goal was uh, to stagger your varieties uh, mm -hmm. in, a, in a sequence whereby they would become ripe. So Pinot Noir tends to get ripe uh, uh, maybe a little before the Chardonnay, 
which gets ripe before the Shannon Blanc, which got ripe before the uh, white Riesling. And the gentleman I bought it from was a custom farmer, farmed for a lot of people. And he was looking for stuff to get off the vines early and not be impacted by late rains. Cabernet uh, being the favorite grape of the valley today at the time, uh, its disadvantage was the lateness of its ripening. And uh, now we've learned to uh, work with it and um, through a cleaner plant material and uh, and uh, some little more modern uh, uh, methods, we are uh, getting it off in, in nice fashion. And uh, you still get the occasional rain, I suppose, at harvest time. The only year that was ever really devastating was 1972, where we got about 12 inches of rain uh, before the Cabernet got ripe. And that was an absolute mess. And we wound up leaving a significant part of it uh, out there just literally to rot on the vines. And uh, other than 1972, uh, 1970 is the only other real troublesome year I've had. And that was because we had a monumental frost in the spring. And the valley lost about uh, maybe 70% of its crop or so that year. But other than those two uh, hiccups, I suppose you'd say, um, it's been a pretty nice place to grow grapes, uh, learn the business uh, along with uh, uh, all the other folks in the valley. And um, and uh, it's kind of, a, you know, dream come true kind of thing. It's It's been a lot of fun. Yeah, sometimes people talk about the 1998 vintage as being one of the more troublesome ones in, well, recent history, but it's been a while. Was that one a tough one as well? Uh, it was uh, a little bit tough, nothing compared to 72. Uh, and what happened in, in 11 um, is uh, we saw a, a, a pretty good-sized storm coming, and... Um, uh, the Cabernet was pretty close to ripe, so a lot of folks jumped out and picked uh, picked it before maybe you normally would have. Uh, Paradigm here and, and some other growers, too. We went through the storm, and I spent uh, about three days with guys with heavy-duty leaf blowers going through the vineyard on little John Deere gators and uh, blowing water off the bunches and off the leaves and drying things out as best we could. And uh, today I think you'll find our uh, 2011s to be a pretty nice bottle of wine. Uh, we still have a little bit. We yeah. own our own warehouse and uh, we're still, uh, we're still enjoying the occasional 11. There's nothing wrong with it. Yeah. You've talked about in the past and I enjoyed a couple of wines just in preparation for the interview, a Merlot and a Cabernet Sauvignon. Um, 2015 and 16 respectively i think it was um and uh actually picked it up in town at gary's and then the cab and then the the merlot was at sunshine market so you know, your wines can be found obviously all over the valley and uh, through the website too we're going to post some links so people can go buy some wine but you've mentioned in the past about how you've extended the cork uh, to make the cork a little bit longer. Um, and I'm looking at it right now. It's definitely longer than some of the other ones I've had. Is that to help the wine age a little bit better? And what was the thought process there? Well, the thought process was exactly that. Uh, uh, corks, uh, normally, if you're drinking a wine within uh, you know a year or so of purchase, uh, 
um, are, are quite adequate and, and, and often very much beyond that. But the idea was uh, to have a wine that would age for a long period of time. And 91 was our first year, and we are still drinking the occasional bottle of 91. Wow. As I mentioned, we own our own warehouse, and we have a nice library of all every wine we've ever made. We have a, uh, at least a case or two of uh, laying around. And, uh, and in fact, tonight we've already uh, pulled it out uh, of the, our home wine cellar. We're, we're going to be drinking a 92 wine tonight. Wow, that's amazing. Uh, that is so that is so special. You mentioned the real estate brokerage business. That was a really interesting time in the early 1980s. Interest rates peaked right around that time. I think it was 1981-82. We had Paul Volcker as the Fed chair at the time and he was trying to stamp out inflation and he was raising rates at the time, but we've had interest rates fall from that, I think it was 16, 17, 18% range, <laughs> all the way to near zero where they yeah. are now. Mm-hmm. How was working back then in real estate and, and how you've seen it evolve over the years, and especially the, the prices just in Napa and all over the place? Well, the, the prices have gone a, a little berserk. Our, our base price for our acreage here at Paradigm, because we traded into it, is uh, well under ten thousand dollars an acre, um, and uh, uh, t- today it's hard to say. You're, where we are in Oakville, uh, you'd be talking hundreds of thousands per acre. I suspect. Not that I've uh, uh, any intention of selling, and very seldom does one change hands anymore. And during the eighties, where interest rates were high, uh, a lot of our sales were uh, to selling. Uh, land that belonged to old farming families, to uh, individuals who had a fair amount of cash. And uh, so uh, a lot of vineyards uh, traded hands uh, and uh, were, were taken out of the uh, old, old valley uh, uh, you know, pool of uh, uh, local residents and, and gone to new people. And they also hired a lot of custom farmers and uh, uh, were able to afford uh, Pretty nice equipment, and uh, and overall, I think the quality of the wine in the valley has improved over time, and um, we uh, we I hope hope to continue that. I'd, we'll we'll see what happens. Yeah, you mentioned the real estate, you know, brokerage business with Gene Phillips, and there's so much history there with Dollaval. and as you mentioned, Heidi Barrett being introduced there, and kind of you helping with that introduction. Um, there's a, a bottle of wine I found online that's called Gene Phillips and Ren Harris Cabernet Sauvignon Napa Valley 1992. Uh, and it has kind of a green label. <laughs> it, the, oh, yeah. it actually it looks like a really rare bottle. The website talks about it was uh, sourced from a private collector and it's actually for sale if someone wants to buy it. Uh, but not that I'm promoting this particular website right now here. But, you know, I wanted to ask you about this wine because when I saw it, I was like, wow, that seems, uh, you know, I've never heard of it before. And the, me- the website mentioned it wasn't for commercial sale, but it was for the actual real estate business. Yeah, we use it more or less like a business card during the holiday period. Uh, I think that would have been probably around 1995. And it's 50% Screaming Eagle, 50% Paradigm uh, Cabernet. Uh, and we, uh, uh, we never did sell it. So it's not, a, it's not the kind of thing 
that uh, was ever commercially available unless somebody's reselling one we gave away. I still got a few bottles left at home. And, and last time I drank one was probably oh, March, February, March. And it's uh, it's quite a nice bottle of wine still. It's doing very, very well. Um, you know, properly yeah. stored at uh, our, our wines keep they do a good job. Yeah. Yeah, as you mentioned, you're going to be pulling out uh, a 1992. I think you said so. That's going to be um, that's going to be really amazing and interesting to see uh, to see to kind of relive that. And as you mentioned, you have at least a case or two of all the wines in the library, which is really special. Um, let's talk a little about you know the portfolio of wines. People can go to the website and buy wine. As far as you know, you've talked about in the past of your land being able to have different rootstocks, uh, different clones. Um, obviously, there's the blending that Heidi Barrett does, uh, kind of the amazing blending that she's kind of known for, too, with the Bordeaux varietals. Um, but you have 11 blocks uh, for the cab. And so having the variety, the, the, diff- the variation between the different blocks, the different rootstocks and clones, how does all that kind of meld into making the wine that you're trying to make a paradigm? Well, we have, you're correct. We have 11 different blocks of Cabernet and we only make wine from grapes that we grow ourselves. So it's all off the 55 acre piece here. Uh, There is some variables in the soil, which makes for another uh, difference. And what we've done over the years, and it's because the plant material uh, has been more, uh, identifiable and uh, in terms of clones and rootstock. When I first came up here, you basically went up the road to a guy who was getting a nice crop of grapes, got some budwood from him and bought it down and put it in your vineyard. And uh, now, thanks to the University of California and the nursery system, uh, we can go back to uh, uh, variations in both the rootstocks and the clones and uh, so it adds some um, uh, nuances uh, to the wine. And also we can take advantage of our soils here. We have uh, uh, some with a little bit of gravel, uh, some is loam, some's got a little bit of clay. And we have one uh, that must have been spit from a volcano on the east side of the valley that's different than everything else, some kind of chert or something. Um and so we, uh, we, even though we have about 38 acres of Cabernet, uh, they don't all be, if they were all the same clone and the same rootstock, they would tend to become ripe at the same moment. But we're able to spread our Cabernet picking season out over a two to three week period. So they come ripe in succession. And we also blend a little Merlot, uh, Cabernet Franc, Petit Verdot into the mix. And, uh, we uh, keep all our fermentations separate uh, all through fermentation uh, and secondary fermentation and uh, all through the uh, barrel aging process. We uh, top our barrels every two weeks for 20 months. And then also on uh, three occasions during that 20 months, we keep the lot separate, but we empty the barrels entirely, uh, clean them up. Um, make sure there's no leaks or anything and put the wine back. And uh, so we take pretty good care of it. And then uh, just before bottling, we uh, Heidi comes along 
along with, with Mark Fossey, our, is our GM here. Mark's also a well-qualified winemaker. And uh, they uh, put a blend together. I, I, I pretend I'm helping. I don't have the palate either one of those people have, but, but it's, it's fun to participate. And, and, uh, and we are, we add to the complexity of things a, a little bit. Uh, and right now we're toying with the thought of maybe introducing uh, an acre or two of Malbec in the vineyard for the same reason. If we find something we like, uh, we might put that out there and, uh, uh, and maybe a few years from now we'll have a percentage or two of Malbec or maybe we'll have a Malbec label. We do make a little bit of Zinfandel, which uh, growing up in San Francisco was a, uh, a common variety. A lot of my friend, Italian friends, parents and grandparents made in their basements. Uh, so I have a, a long history of, of that. And we also have, uh, uh, Merlot and uh, Cabernet Franc and Petit Verdot. So uh, we uh, we make about uh, between six and seven thousand cases of wine a year, and uh, we still sell uh, uh, some Cabernet to Groth Winery, a winery we actually sold it to the Groth family back in '82, uh, I think it was, and also we sell some Merlot to. Uh, Farniente, Gil Nickel was a close personal friend and until he uh, passed away, gosh, he's been dead about close to 20 years now, I guess. It doesn't seem possible. But um, anyway, uh, a, a lot of camaraderie uh, in the valley here. There's a group of us, uh, oh gosh, I don't know, it used to be 18, 20 of us would motorcycle around the country during the slower part of the season, touring with our wives behind us and uh, been over a good part of uh, North America together. And Gil Nickel actually is the one that kind of got that ball rolling. And John Drafethan joined us and uh, Randy Lewis and a few others in the wine business. And uh, we've had, we've had a lot of, uh, uh, a lot of fun over the years, uh, uh, a little outside the winemaking sphere, but became good friends and see each other with some regularity. It sounds like an amazing adventure. There's a website online, um, Napa Valley Wine Project, run by a guy named Dave. He has some interesting facts in there about Paradigm. He talks about how you actually put out a call to have someone choose the name through a contest. How did that actually come about? Well, uh, we, uh, number one, did not want to name it after ourselves. My wife and I didn't. Um, uh, and, um, we, uh, came up with some names that sounded fantastic that proved to be trademarked. Uh, there are thousands of names that are trademarked that nobody ever heard of. So we put the word out, uh, uh, that if somebody came up with a name that we liked and that we used, uh, we'd uh, ship them a case of wine every year until either they dropped dead or I dropped dead. And a couple just retired, uh, uh, Jim Dillon and his wife, Sue, where they retired from Boston. He was a banker there. I uh, came up with the name. They were staying at Ron and Anna Hun, Nunn's uh, guest house, friends of ours. And uh, the nuns told them about the deal. They came up with Paradigm. We grabbed it. We were able to lock it down. And we're still shipping them a case of wine every year. And I think Jim has got to be in his 90s at this point. Uh, and Sue's alive as well. And uh, also the name... <laughs> got drug out a little further. Uh, 
over the years, uh, we had a series of assistant winemakers. Uh, among them was uh, Ann Vauder. Um, and uh, Ann's a winemaker uh, and uh, makes wine for herself, but she was very much into horses. And she found a horse she really liked and would wanted to buy. Um, and so we uh, participated in uh, helping her purchase the horse with the uh, uh, only caveat being that she had to name the horse Paradigm, so uh, which she did, and uh, Paradigm may still be alive there somewhere. I'm not too sure. This is going back a few years, but but it got went a little bit beyond just naming a, a bottle of wine for it. Yeah. So yeah, that's exactly where I was going to go yeah. next. I actually interviewed Anne um, here on the podcast a couple weeks ago, and we talked a little bit about that. And yes, Paradigm is still alive. Um, and it's the horse is actually a, uh, a horse to do training where people are, are learning to do horseback riding and things. Uh, so she told the, the really interesting story there and of her label, Red Mare Wines, the horse there and an iconic um, a drawing from an amazing artist. So people, if they want to see a picture of the horse, I uh, can see it on her label, but uh, yeah, that was really interesting. And she told the story of how she worked under Heidi Barrett for about four years and how, you know, it was kind of a training ground for an amazing experience for people to kind of launch their career. Uh, were there any other people that came through Paradigm over the years that kind of launched out of there? Yeah. Helen Keplinger, uh, a notable uh, uh, young lady, um, was uh, kind of uh, an, an interesting uh, individual, uh, very, very small person. You'd describe her as petite if you saw her, except she's got the strength of an ox. Uh, and uh, she used to uh, make a point about performing. Uh, anybody she was working alongside was kind of interesting. She was by uh, here a couple of weeks ago. She had a, a baby recently, and we... Uh, uh, engraved the uh, birth announcement on a uh, five-liter bottle of the new new arrival, and uh, then filled it full of 1916 uh, paradigm. So when the baby uh, D- DJ, I, I think is uh, they, he has got several names, but anyway, DJ is her husband. She and DJ, uh, uh, hopefully, maybe when uh, the baby turns 21 and uh, uh, 2037, maybe they'll drink that five-liter bottle. So. And it's, uh, we, we sell, we sell most of our wine actually direct to consumers and we, we make annually, we're always filling up a few, uh, a few baby bottles, uh, and, uh, for folks to keep, uh, as their kids get, get to drinking age and that sort of thing. But since, uh, we started, we've had, uh, for the last, uh, almost 30 years now, I've had four, uh, fellows working for me here that, um, uh, are, are part of my permanent crew. And one of them, uh, Pedro Martinez, has taken over uh, the assistant kind of winemaking job and knows it quite well. And his uh, English has improved more than my Spanish has. So he's actually become our assistant winemaker. Uh, but prior to that, uh, we had a series of folks in here. Jeff Blum was another one. Jason Fisher was another one. Uh, there's a lady that preceded, uh, uh, Anne, I'm can't remembering her. I'm not remembering her name at the moment, but anyway, um, yeah, it's been a bit of a training ground, a launch pad for, 
for some other folks, which is pretty common in our industry. And I've found, too, over the years, sometimes they'll work uh, southern enormous and northern hemispheres and get two seasons in in one calendar year. Uh, so they're, uh, it's uh, an interesting vocation if you want to really follow it. Yeah, and so many people have come through there and done amazing things. Also in the website, the Napa Valley Wine Project, they talk about the uh, Dwyer Road where right off 29, there's a, a little sign that says no wineries down this road. <laughs> and that's kind of where, you know, the road that leads to where you are. Is there a story behind that? You know, the valley has changed so much with different landmarks and all types of signs and things coming. But I think the charm that it still has, though, too, is it still has kind of that small town feel and that that small feel where it still hasn't gotten too big. Um yeah, well, the, 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 I'm on good terms with all my neighbors uh, here, and I definitely want to keep it that way. And rather than have people wander down what is eventually a dead-end road and turning around in their driveways and such, uh, unless the people are uh, uh, heading here and know where they're going, uh, the sign hopefully will uh, get them to turn around in our driveway instead of uh, – somebody else down the road and go back. And generally speaking, uh, it, it's, it's served its purpose pretty well. Uh, it, it keeps it from being uh, too busy a street. And, uh, Cause it's, on, it's only uh, about a mile long or so. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. I think lastly, just kind of closing up here, you know, when, when I think about Napa cab and, you know, we talked about Heidi Barrett and obviously her, really long track record making wine for you and, and amazing wines. It, we talked about, you know, you can look at Screaming Eagle, Dolival, and, and just so many great properties in Oakville. But what really comes to mind is just the early 90s and kind of through those mid-90s years, Robert Parker kind of came to fame and Napa Cab really got put on the map. Um, and you being kind of right in the middle of that, you know, talk about just that experience and kind of leading up to today. Um, obviously, you know, there's been a lot of talk about the future of Napa and the, the future of, of Cabernet and wine as, as millennials are coming of age and the baby boomers are retiring and preference changes, but also just the price of, of wine and <laughs> being able to afford it and those types of things. There was an article that, you know, most people have read by now in uh, New York Times with Andy Beckstoffer talking about just the, the price of, of grapes going up over time and, and wine, et cetera. But why don't we just get into that a little bit? Uh, sure. Well, to, uh, to really get into that, you've got to go back to 1968 when uh, they formed the Agricultural Preserve in Napa Valley. Uh, and But for that, uh, we'd probably be Silicon Valley North by now. But uh, they had a... Uh, Result of that was a 40-acre minimum lot split. So if you wanted to split your property, you had to have at least 80 acres to split at once. So that kind of kept you in agriculture and not in subdivisions or buildings or what have you. And mm -hmm. uh, at the time, my father-in-law uh, actually was a planning commissioner uh, and a farmer, the only farmer on the planning commission. Uh, I went to all those meetings back in 68 and, uh, it was quite controversial, but it's proven, uh, one of the things that, uh, driven, uh, uh, people to the Valley because they knew they could stay in agriculture and not become 
consumed by uh, uh, industrial or residential development. And um, Andy Bexhoffer is a personal friend. Andy and I spent a lot of time lobbying uh, up in Sacramento for uh, interests of uh, agriculture. And uh, for a time, I was president of uh, uh, Napa County Farm Bureau, and I started the Napa Valley Grape Growers Association back in the mid-'70s. So it's been a collective effort, but it all really goes back to the agricultural preserve. That got appealed all the way to the Supreme Court, uh, who refused to hear it. So it's locked in place. Prices are another issue. I I actually kind of worry about them. I, they're... Um, you know, I'm, I'm my own farmer, run my own place. I bought it way back when things were relatively cheap. And uh, we sell a bottle of Cabernet for $84. Uh, and it's competitive quality-wise with anything in the Valley. And as you know, prices uh, all around uh, are, are, are edging way up there. It's And you wonder how many people uh, are going to uh, want to spend that much money on a bottle of wine. And... Uh, uh, I worry that that maybe uh, we, you know, I don't want to become too exclusive. I, I'd like I'd like to be able to keep selling my wine at a price the people that have been buying it for years can continue to afford. Um, but uh, we, we we'll see what happens to the prices and that follows through. We've got great restaurants uh, with pretty high prices, expensive places to stay, and all that because right now we're a, an agricultural community and the in the midst of a pretty heavily populated area of California. Yeah. And for those who know, obviously your wines, every vineyard and every winery has different economics and there's different prices based on if they purchase fruit and do they own the land and there's all these inputs. But as you mentioned, you know, with the paradigm wines, just punching way above their weight class where, you know, you're getting an incredible wine that's uh, like you mentioned for 80, $85. That's, uh, you know, you could spend two or $300 and it's, you know, you're getting that quality. And so people in the know who are kind of value investors in that way, no paradigm, I think. And hopefully this will give a chance for new people who don't to go explore the wines. Lastly, I think just closing out here, let's just have have some fun. What have you been drinking lately? What what type of wines do you like right now? It's we've hit I think a hundred degrees or almost um, in the nineties. It's cooled down a little bit this week, but what have you been drinking lately? Well, we we make a rosé uh, out of a hundred percent merlot, and we do a Van Gris style of winemaking uh, as opposed to a Sunier style. And it's got a little uh, body to it, uh, and it's got some nice acid. It works very well on a nice uh, hot afternoon. Also, it works well with uh, you know, foods like maybe fish or even spicy foods that red wines uh, kind of uh, uh, don't go quite so well with. So that's uh, at the moment, I'm probably drinking a little more uh, rosé of Merlot, which has got uh, no barrel aging, no bottle aging, and no cork as opposed to everything else we make. And that twenty nine fifty is a pretty pretty decent bottle of wine. So, yeah, I'm looking at the website here, and people can go to the website and buy it. Uh, twenty nine bucks, hundred um, percent Mer- Merlot rosés, as you mentioned, and the notes on this just look amazing. And you have the photo here right by the pool. Cranberry, strawberry, pomegranate, and um, <laughs> I think uh, right about now is I think when I'm going to be 
uh, looking for a bottle of this and, and go out on the deck or go by the pool because it's it's actually heating up. Uh, today will be pretty hot in the afternoon here in the valley. But Ren, really appreciate you coming on. And uh, this was so great. And hopefully uh, people go purchase some wine and go revisit the podcast while they're uh, sipping on some of this wine. Good. Well, appreciate it, Ryan. Good to talk to you. And come by and see us sometime. Love to meet up with you. Thanks for joining us today. If you like the show, we encourage you to tell a friend. You can support the show by subscribing to our email newsletter for just five bucks a month. Find it on our website at goldenwestpodcast.com. In it, you'll find unique bottles from both popular and undiscovered winemaking talent, among other things. If you have feedback, find us on Twitter at goldenwestpod, or you can email us at goldenwestpodcast at gmail.com. As a reminder, All opinions expressed by guests are solely their own and may or may not reflect the views of their employer or any other affiliated entity. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be used as a basis for investment decisions or any other advice. Please eat and drink responsibly and thanks for listening.